0: politics, and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the Ageless Wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality.
1: Welcome to the
0: Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner.
1: It's KPFK in Los Angeles and the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm your host, Michael Benner. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. We have a great guest for you today, Georgia Lambert, one of Southern California's foremost wisdom teachers, and we'll go to Georgia in just a few minutes, as has become the custom on our new radio program here. We're going to open with a commentary, given that these are such dynamic and uh, some would say terrifying times, watching such significant events in our history unfold before us. We have the inauguration of a new president tomorrow, and yet most of us are still reeling over what happened a couple of weeks ago on January 6th. And because this is the Mystery School, because this is a program about consciousness, I want to remind you that while my comments about current events may sound political, or even at times religious, they are neither. So let me be clear, these are non-political and non-religious approaches to the nature of consciousness and human behavior in that context. So, what the hell happened on January 6th if we say, well, this is not political? And although a significant number of individuals in the Trump base are religiously zealous, this is not about religion. What is it really about? Well, last week I talked about the four groups in Trump's base. I talked about the racists, the deplorables, the white nationalist evangelicals, which is not all evangelicals are all fundamentalists by any means, but those who seek to supplant democracy with a theocracy and make the United States an all-Christian or all-Waspy white Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation. And the fourth group, the donor class, the people who fund the first three. Well, there is an enormous amount of overlap, but what it's about, I think, is evolution. And I'd like to propose today that we begin to consider a distinct change in the way we look at polarization. Everybody agrees that the nation is divided, that it's polarized as never before, and yet we think of it as left and right. The left being progressive or liberal, the socialists, as we're called by our conservative friends, and on the right, the so-called conservatives, and yet, clearly, Trump is no conservative. Before COVID and the destruction of the economy, Trump had already added over $2 trillion to the national debt through tax cuts for billionaires, those who least deserve, much less merit, any reduction in taxes. So the idea of being fiscally responsible, that's out the window. Evangelicals and the family values people Clearly, we're okay with Trump grabbing private parts and being divorced and sleeping with a porn star while his wife is nursing a newborn baby. So much for family values. As the Republican Party, or the right wing, has become the party of Donald Trump, it clearly is not a conservative party. Leading conservatives in the Republican Party have quit and become never-Trumpers, or join the Lincoln Project, and have worked tirelessly to oppose Trump. The whole idea of using a left-right spectrum to describe politics goes back to the French Revolution, when the parliament was first set up, and the citizens sat on the left side— those who were most in favor of having overthrown the monarchy, the rebels, the revolutionaries, they sat on the left side of the parliament in France. While on the right side of the parliament, wanting nothing to do with these scoundrels on the left, were the loyalists, those who were aristocratic, the landowners, the blue bloods, the moneyed, the people in the court they sat on the right side of the center aisle and so it is at the Capitol in Washington DC that's where left and right come from but it's an inadequate model it doesn't work anymore it fails to help us understand what's happened to the right in America So what I'd like to propose today is that we rotate this spectrum 90 degrees clockwise and understand it as a vertical spectrum with progressives or liberals at the top and the deplorables at the bottom, which puts conservatives somewhere in the middle. And we need to understand this form of polarization as evolutionary. Think of the word progressive, what does that mean? To progress is to move forward, to promote evolution, growth, refinement, the bettering of humanity and and the world condition, to seek attainment of values and and, and ethics and uh, higher purpose not to demand unity, but to be more tolerant of diversity for the way it enriches us. And what is conservative always meant? Conservative, which I see as being somewhat in the middle of this totem pole, means to resist that growth. When a conservative says, I want my country back, They want to go back to Leave it to Beaver. They want a black and white Pleasantville, none of this color. Nothing dangerous or subversive. You never draw outside the lines. And white folks are in charge. Let's be clear. When Trump says that he won the election, or those in his base say, this election was stolen, he won by a landslide, they're right. If you only count white people, and that's what they mean. They mean people of color, black, brown, yellow, red, any non-white ethnicity has less of a right and shouldn't be voting. This is a white country, a white Christian country. Trump won that vote. Make America great again. Make America white again. And so as that white majority loses its grip on society and the percentage of Americans who are white becomes slowly less and less and less, the spectrum extends downward beyond conservative to the racist, to the deplorables, to the zealots, to the people with few, if any, ethics or morality. And this idea of a vertical spectrum, I think merits some reflection. In fact, we can even consider that it's somewhat like a pendulum that is broad at the base. And as we move up the pendulum toward the top, toward the liberals and the progressives, it becomes more harmonious and and more unified. Now, I think we have to be careful of not suggesting that we're superior in terms of rights or superior in terms of human dignity or equality under the law. To be a progressive, to be a liberal, to be more harmonious doesn't make us superior beings. Everyone has gifts. Everyone has talents. Everyone has good and bad in them. Every wonderful person you know is capable of horrible things. And every deplorable person you know has goodness within them. But each of us has free will. What do we choose? And this is where fear plays a role. For those who are lower down on this vertical spectrum, closer to the bottom of the pendulum, there is great fear. Fear born of a feeling of separation, of isolation, of alienation, of not understanding your connections to humanity, of often being confused by the appearance of someone being different than you. And that becomes a vicious cycle of confusion and ignorance, creating even more fear and anxiety, which confuses us and stresses us even more, makes us more afraid, more likely to own guns, more likely to focus and obsess only on belief systems born of conspiracy theories. Again, ignorance and confusion. Or as we move up the vertical spectrum and become more liberal, more progressive, we're more likely to be well-educated and interested in becoming aware of what we do not know. For this is wisdom. This is where wisdom begins, understanding how much we do not know about ourselves and about other people. That's what makes you liberal and progressive. You recognize diversity as something wonderful, as a value. And so the pendulum has a left-right swing, a liberal-conservative horizontal back and forth to it. But moreover, if we recognize that as being broadest at the base, where people are least likely to have access to education, where people... Their anger and hostility comes from the fact that they have dead-end jobs, no real career, little or no prospect for advancement economically, unless or until they get training. Go to a trade school or a college, a university, some sort of training center, so that they don't have to rely on being an unskilled laborer. That's the problem. Unskilled labor can be found anywhere in the world and capitalists will exploit that and go to wherever labor is the cheapest. And then automation and the influx of high technology and the need for people who have highly developed skills and expertise, that's essential to earning a living in the 21st century. I think the pendulum model of the vertical and the horizontal as a replacement for simple left-right politics is rich and suggests that those of us who think of ourselves as progressive can turn and lend a hand helping those below us to climb higher into the realms of harmony, love, kindness, and the fulfillment that comes from having the skills necessary to read books, to study diverse and antagonistic information without being threatened by it, and to treat each other with dignity and respect and compassion. Just a thought, something for you to contemplate as we move into the post-Trump era. Stay tuned for our interview with Georgia Lambert. This is Michael Benner. You're listening to KPFK.
0: It's a new year, and InterVision has a brand new time slot. Hi, it's Nita Valens, host of InterVision. I want to personally invite you to join us every Friday at 1 p.m. Check us out for the latest in psychology, spirituality, and inspiring stories. That's InterVision Fridays
1: at 1 o'clock, your lunchtime spot for health and spirituality, right here on KPFK. You're listening to KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and I'm your host, Michael Benner, with a guest today that uh, I'm very pleased to present to you a woman I met, uh, I think, in the early to mid-1990s. So, what do the math, Michael, 25 years ago or so. And I had her on a radio program that I was doing back then and was so intrigued by the material that she had access to. I enrolled in the class, and boy, she really cracked the code for me and uh, put together all kinds of things, or allowed me in like a Tetris game in my mind. All all these pieces suddenly fell into place, and I'm forever indebted to her for that. And I think I studied with... Uh, Georgia for about four and a half or five years on a weekly basis. No COVID back then, so we would actually drive across town. Georgia Lambert is my guest, one of the foremost wisdom teachers in Southern California. Georgia, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK.
0: Good to be here with you.
1: It's so nice to uh, see you again after all this time. I've really missed you. I learned so much from you. Um, I'm going to try and rein myself in lest I spend this whole segment just heaping praise upon you for for what you did for me. I think like many other women and men, I was reading uh, psychology books, uh, esoteric philosophy books as well as regular philosophy books, all of the burgeoning literature that was coming out in the 1970s and 80s about positive psychology and what was often called new age thinking, but actually is as old as time itself. And yet uh, a lot of it just didn't make sense to me. The Bailey books, for example, they really intrigued me. And yet I just couldn't quite get a handle on it. And somehow you put that together with uh, a class called Nature of the Soul. Why don't you tell us a little about what I think is the cornerstone of all of the different classes that you teach, Nature of the Soul?
0: Well, Nature of the Soul, it takes about two years. Uh, People don't have to sign up for the whole thing. They just keep coming as long as they think they're getting something out of it. Uh, but Nature of the Soul is a very specific kind of class. You know, most of what's called meditation out in the marketplace isn't yet really meditation. It's uh, relaxation techniques or visualization techniques or even concentration techniques, although not so many of those. Nature of the Soul teaches you how to build your own radio set, basically. In esoteric terms, this is called the soul-mind-brain alignment. It allows you to reach up into that, what the Hindus call the rain cloud of knowable things, that spiritual body of wisdom that overshadows humanity in each age, and uh, pull from that. You know, there's, there's three different basic categories of meditation. There's the kind of meditation which I call meditation for communion. This is that kind of meditation where you just move into that higher life and take a breath and be nurtured and sustained and uh, support it. Uh, That's sort of the communion with that which is larger than us. The second kind of meditation is meditation for learning. Instead of going to books or something that's already been downloaded and given a form, you get to Build a hookup to that rain cloud of knowable things and do your own fresh download that is applicable to you in your particular time and place. So instead of going to the library out there, you go to the internal library. The third kind of meditation is meditation for service to others. These are those behind the scene techniques that help adjust negative situations or offer healing and support. Nature of the Soul is a class that deals with all three of these categories. It's a step-by-step class, which allows you to work with beginning techniques, and that builds in certain things, and then you go on to more advanced techniques, which build on the ones before, and then more advanced techniques still. So it's an unfolding process. It's a building process. Um, It requires meditation activity on the part of the participant. It's not just about esoteric information.
1: I think the idea that understanding is greater than knowledge would be another way of talking about this. There's a great Einstein quote that I came across uh, that's a bit harsh, but he says, uh, any fool can know things. The secret is to understand. And I think many people who develop their intuition enjoy an awareness, and sometimes it comes in slowly and sometimes in great bursts, sometimes like the dawning of an idea, and sometimes it's like the light bulb comes on or the top of your head explodes, <laughs> and suddenly things become so obvious to you. And it's not that you have more data, it's that you have a broader perspective.
0: Right. There's just as much crystallization in thought in the esoteric community as any religion or political system. And a lot of people confuse esoteric knowledge with wisdom. Just because you've got a lot of data means you've got a lot of brains, but not necessarily mind. Mind is that which is receptive to the overshadowing part of us, that part of us that's above and free of the form, that's part of the bigger life. You know, there's a an analogy I always use in in my classes that if you think of the great whales, for instance, they swim in the water, they mate in the water, they bear their young in the water, they feed in the water, their whole social interactions are in the water, but they breathe air. And in order to live, every once in a while, they have to come to the surface and take a breath, Real meditation is like that. We are spiritual beings living in an element that is denser than our identity. And every once in a while, we have to reach up and take a breath, and then we can come back and do this game of illusion that the Buddhists talk about.
1: Well, I can see where that would be a prime purpose for meditation as opposed to simply managing stress or promoting physical healing, and surely it's good for all of those things. But this idea that there is a, as you say, rain cloud of knowable things, it reminds me of Carl Jung's collective. Is this the same as the idea of a collective unconscious?
0: Um, There are some similarities, but they are different. Jung's uh, realm of archetypal ideas and images – is really part of humanity's mind or humanity's mental self. The rain cloud of knowable things, as the Hindus put it, exists above that. You know, the human experience is in what the Easterners call the three lower worlds. This is the physical realm, the emotional or astral realm, and the mental realm. But it's all still part of the three lower worlds. When the Hindus talk about being freed from the wheel of rebirth – they mean freedom from physical matter, emotional or astral matter, and mental matter. So the rain cloud of knowable things exists above that, and it can be invoked into the mind where the mind can then give it shape as a thought or um, an activity to be engaged in. So uh, meditation, again, is not only taking that deep breath to be uh refreshed by that divine life that is really who we are and where we live. But again, it's also the learning process and learning for the sake of the rest of humanity. Because if we can bring in a new idea, that idea doesn't belong to us. We don't own it. We set it loose within the mind of humanity. And those that that truly meditate can bring in ideas that Maybe somebody else can act on an idea that's maybe outside their realm of experience, but as they bring it down and set it loose within the mind of humanity, someone else who doesn't have that equipment yet, but can function in mind, can pick up that thought and use it and do something with it. And of course, they think it's their own, uh, not realizing it's coming from this mental collective, um, but they can empower it. So, when one person meditates, this is humanity that is reaching up and meditating.
1: So, the rain cloud of knowable things, if we're going to develop this allegory of the rain cloud, we could think of thoughts or ideas that precipitate down in meditative states when we stand open and receptive.
0: Let let, let me interrupt you. It's not thoughts or ideas, it's...
1: Well, that's what it, I was it, going to it, it's,
0: ask. It's that right before thoughts and ideas.
1: Right. The cloud is the vapor. Anything that manifests as a thought would be the raindrop that precipitates. In other words, you're not getting thoughts, ideas, words right. coming down. It's more of an awareness that is a a fertile ground out of which each individual would assemble a thought or a particular phrase of words, is that exactly, it?
0: Exactly, exactly. There's there's um, uh, an erroneous idea that people get thoughts or ideas or words uh, in meditation. The thoughts or words are your interpretation of that very abstract frequency, which is above mind as we know it, but as we bring it into mind, it takes on mental shape. And we build it, either consciously or unconsciously, into a thought form. And then that mental uh, um, entity that we've created continues its descent into the astral or emotional, where it becomes movement or force. The astral plane is the power factor of manifestation. And that moves it downward into physicality. Um, of course, a lot of things get stillborn on the way for reasons we don't need to go into today. But uh, when it reaches the physical, then it comes out as deeds and words and activity.
1: I recall reading or attempting <laughs> attempting to read a uh, medieval book written by an anonymous uh, source, a monk of some sort, no one really knows, called The Cloud of Unknowing. Oh, yes. And- It used to be somewhat of a classic, but I think it's not very well known these days. But in this book, as I recall, the idea is expressed that words are forms that actually stand between us and awareness, and that, as mystics in ancient times would say, you cannot think your way to God, that the very act of thinking – of attempting to find words, which are forms, after all, they're separate things, that those would stand between you and the ultimate source of things, and that we have to rise above that and access what you're talking about, which is how else do we describe it as awareness itself? Is there it, some other way of…
0: No, that's a, that's a good way of describing it, and and you're absolutely right. You know, I was mentioning before that a lot of what's called meditation out there is either relaxation techniques, which are really great and do wonderful things for the physical body, you know, alleviate stress and lower your blood pressure. Um, There's also techniques that are visualization techniques that are picture making, you know, you you kind of get in touch with your subconscious and have a uh, symbolic animal or, or guide or something that comes to you in your visions, that kind of thing. But above that is a category called concentration. And you don't see it a lot out there because it's hard and it's boring. And most adults, especially very capable creative adults, uh, if they can't master something, the first couple times they try, they say, oh, I'm too advanced for that. I don't need to do that. But in a concentration technique, it teaches you how to be quiet inside so that you can listen. None of us are quiet inside. We're talking to ourselves all the time. Even when we read to ourselves, we're forming words within our brains. So part of meditation is learning to quiet that. Um, The Easterners call it the monkey mind or the, the chatter part of us. We have to learn to quiet that so we can listen to something more abstract, And it's really changing the brain itself to be receptive to messages that are more subtle than our normal thought life or feeling life or physical impulse life. A good example of this would be when the Easterners talk about meditating on a rock or a flower. The idea is that Within within your own being, you visualize the subject, the flower or the rock, but you don't think about it, which is extremely difficult. You're not thinking about the great cosmic significance of rocks or, you know, what the flower looks like and its symbology. You're just holding the picture and then not talking about it, not talking to yourself, not thinking about it, just holding it. Most people can only do this for a few seconds. But in those seconds, the brain can be receptive to something more subtle. It can build a receiving station to something more subtle than our constant talking. And that's part of the training. In the early stages, that's part of the training.
1: I often think of it as somewhat like the way I would watch uh, a sunset or another idea that has occurred to me is, A newborn baby—you don't judge those things. You don't measure them. You uh, don't—you don't. You look at a newborn baby and the mother and the energy in the room, and you're not thinking about it. You're just awash in this transcendent feeling of something so magical, so wondrous so beyond our ability to describe that if we cultivate that appreciation mindfully in in our daily life and affairs, well, my goodness, that's a very different way to live a life, isn't it?
0: Sure. And it doesn't mean that the mind is thrown away as unimportant. It is important because when we bring in those higher abstract energies, they don't do any good unless we can make them of use down here. So we have to be able to give them a a body of, of thought. We have to give them an activity and an expression. And so meditation is not just reaching up and invoking that abstract quality or frequency. It's also learning how to bring it down and give it proper shape.
1: This whole idea of a vertical hierarchy of wisdom, of love, of awareness understanding may sound a little strange to some people. And I'm wondering what you think about suggesting that contemplating the nature of our intuition would be a good entry point to considering logic is not the only way to ponder our existence, (laughs) you know, to understand something. Uh, uh, How is intuition – different from logic, uh, and how would you describe intuition in the in the context of what you've described to us so far?
0: Well, first we have instinct, which is part of our animal nature. Uh, then we have intellect, which is part of the lower concrete mind. And then we have true intuition, Most people, when they use intuition, they're talking about a sort of psychic astral sense. But true intuition is a function of the soul. It's a function of our higher self. And before you can get to it, you have to have a developed intellect. Again, the intellect isn't thrown away. Now, the interesting thing is that in the past, you've had two approaches on the spiritual path called the heart path and the head path, or the path of the mystic and the path of the occultist. The path of the mystic results in sainthood. The path of the occultist results in the sage. It used to be that a person would travel via their own inner nature one of these paths more dominantly than the other. In the heart path, you have energies from the lower chakras or centers transferred to the heart, and from the heart then up into the higher centers in the head. In the occult path, you have the transfer of uh, some of those lower centers up to the throat center or the intellect before it's brought into the head. But today, these paths are being merged. And even though a person may be more dominantly mystic or more dominantly uh, an occultist, once you get to the functioning in the head, you've got to pick up the lines that you're weakest in and approach the path from a much more balanced place. So there is this camaraderie between um, the mind and the emotions. Both will get you to a certain place, but once you reach that certain place, they have to be blended.
1: We're speaking with wisdom teacher George of Lambert, and we're talking about esoteric philosophy and really a... a large overview of some of the finer points that religion attempts to address in East, Middle East, and Western cultures, but this is more philosophical, and we're going to have more with Georgia in just a minute. Stay tuned. This is KPFK. (laughs) Hi, this is Michael Benner and I want to thank you for recognizing KPFK as one of the few channels for progressive news in Southern California. There's obviously no shortage of hate radio out there. They're trying to frighten you and they have plenty of followers. Over 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. So we have to stand strong, be resolute in our beliefs, and support each other. If you're not a member of KPFK, now is the time to renew or become one. Join the resistance. We're the voice, but you are the power behind us. Go to kpfk.org and become a KPFK supporter with your donation. Do it now. We're 90.7 KPFK and kpfk.org. Resistance Radio. Powered by the people. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK, and we're heard in Los Angeles at 90.7 FM, in Santa Barbara, 98.7 FM, San Diego, 93.7, and in the high desert, Ridgecrust and China Lake at 99.5 FM. And of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Sometimes I think we may have more listeners tuned in via the internet than old school radio, but be that as it may, the more channels, the better. My guest, Georgia Lambert, is probably Southern California's foremost wisdom teacher. She was my teacher for four or five years, and that's every week for several hours and as i said earlier when they introduced her today made a big difference in connecting the dots and uh, allowing the information that i was trying to piece together to uh, really be seen as a, a kind of a whole tapestry and uh, that's made all the difference georgia i'd like to talk a little about the uh, what in theosophy is known as the ray system, particularly the the first three rays. But I also want to give you a chance to talk about theosophy. I touched on the Bailey books. Many people have probably heard of uh, H.P. Blavatsky and think of the Theosophical Society, capital T, Theosophy as having been formed in the late 19th century, but there's a small T theosophy that goes back hundreds of years to the Rhineland mystics and uh, before the Protestant Reformation even. You want to talk a little about what theosophy is, especially from your particular point of view?
0: Well, the great contribution of Theosophy, even though as an organization, like any organization, it has its difficulties, um, its great contribution was that it brought a lot of Eastern wisdom lines to the West for the first time in any kind of mass way. Uh, there were always individuals that traveled from the West to the East, but they were they were few and far between. Uh, Plavatsky's work. Um, as the founder of, of theosophy, really brought Eastern concepts to the West in a major way. Now, what a lot of people forget is that the West has its own lines of esoteric wisdom that have always been here. Um, however, they're harder to access by today's students because they're so symbolic. Remember that in the West, we had the Inquisition, so the Western mystery lines had to go secret or underground, but some of the great Western mystery lines would be Freemasonry, for instance, uh, Rosicrucianism, um, Kabbalistic tradition, uh, spiritual alchemy, uh, the Matter of Britain, which is the Arthurian mystery quest. Uh, so you had many different systems, and those are only a few, of the mysteries as they presented in the West. But Theosophy brought the East to the West and made certain uh, techniques available to Western students on a, on a wide basis. Now, uh, there's, of course, because things are in organizations, there's disagreement between the Theosophists and the Arcane School, which is the Bailey organization. And there's differences and difficulties between them and even other people. Um But we're moving into a time when it's sort of like the wisdom that overshadowed humanity was a big medallion, and it broke. And each wisdom branch has a piece of it. And those pieces uh, progressed and taught their students and emphasized certain things along the path. But now, humanity is on the verge of a new leap. And it's time to put all those pieces together and understand that they're all telling the same story, different emphasis, uh, different parts of the path, but they all come together. And the traditional esoteric organizations are having a very, very difficult time uh, sharing. We need to have a new round roundtable uh, where the Freemason can talk to the Rosicrucian, can talk to the Buddhist, can talk to the Native American and and know that they're coming at the same thing from different places on the path.
1: Yeah, I know your list was not an attempt to be completely uh, inclusive, but we should mention even modern theosophy split around the Krishna Krishnamurti thing. Yeah. And I, I think we need a tip of the hat to the New Thought School from the, the early 19th century that gave birth to everything from... Uh, Science of mind to, uh, and religious science to unity and Christian science and all these metaphysical Christian, uh, approaches to mysticism. They they may not really be esoteric, but I think they form an entry point for a lot of people.
0: Absolutely. These would be what is called the mysteries of the outer court. Um, and uh, they prepare, if, if, you know, their tenants are actually practiced, they prepare the candidate for deeper things. Uh, in, in the things that I did list there, um, and of course we know that, uh, anthroposophy, Rudolf Steiner's work was another split off of theosophy. But, um, in the, in the ones that I just mentioned, the Arthurian tradition is basically a Christian tradition. It has three levels or layers, properly the Merlin mysteries, which is the old Druidic wisdom of the past. Um, This would include things like understanding the uh, electrical grid of the earth, you know, using standing stones as acupuncture needles to manipulate the earth currents, that sort of thing. So you have the Merlin Mysteries, then you have the Arthurian Mysteries, which is all about, of course, the round table and bringing all the best in the world to create something within humanity. But the third part of that is the Grail Mysteries. The Arthurian Mysteries were a a, a group creation, whereas the Grail Mysteries, the candidate had to set out alone. And go through their own particular story. So, uh, it, it was, of course, all symbolic, and most people only think that those are stories to be read to kids at, at bedtime. But there's an actual mystery tradition behind that that is definitely Christian.
1: El Frank Baum was a theosophist, and for me, anyway, it was just a real awakening one day to be watching The Wizard of Oz and go, oh my God. <laughs> The the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion are the three aspects of Dorothy's persona, her mental, emotional, and physical self. Right. And that brings us to the Three Rays, the idea that those three bodies, the mental, emotional, and physical, are a lower correspondence or an outpicturing of what generally we think of as the Divine Trinity, So, why don't you talk about those three rays, that uh, trinity above and below?
0: Well, in every mystery tradition, you have a central idea of a trinity, whether it's called uh, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Father, Son, and Mother, or Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu, or there's there's many, many uh, examples of this essential trinity. The idea is that everything that is a thing in the manifest universe, whether it be an atom or a galaxy, is at its heart a trinity. Now, the esoteric candidate divorces these from any kind of personality, like father, son, and mother, um, and sees them in a functional way. Uh, The example I always use is a bar magnet. You have a positive pole which equates with spirit, or the father aspect, divine intent. You have the negative pole of the magnet, negative not meaning bad, but receptive. This is the mother aspect, matter, the body of God, the body of the manifest universe. But between the positive pole and negative pole, between father and mother, you have a magnetic field which stands for the soul or consciousness or Christedness aspect, a child that inherits will and purpose from the father, but creativity and existence in form from the mother. So this basic trinity uh, is is talked about in all the different world religions. This trinity then reproduces itself over and over again, again the old medieval idea of as above, so below. And by the way, look at that phrase – As above, so below isn't as above, so here. So as above, so below implies a middle, and the middle is where you stand, because you reach up to that which is above, and you dispense uh, to that which is below. Another way of looking at this is this trinity can be described as three basic energies called in some systems, like theosophy among others, the rays. The first ray is divine will, purpose, power, or intent. The third ray is divine mind. This is far beyond human mind. This is the mind of God. This is the body of the great cosmic biggie out there. And between that, you have consciousness. And consciousness is the thing that's being developed on all levels, not just within human beings, but within all kingdoms in nature, within planets, within solar systems, within galaxies. And so the first three rays that describe this trinity are those energies that make up everything in the manifested cosmos. They're the building blocks of the cosmos. Now, these three first rays, as they interact with matter, create four more, lesser ones, but equally important. And so we have all seven. The best example of this is white light. When you put it through a prism, it creates seven colors. The seven colors each have their own characteristics, but they're part of that greater white light.
1: Well, I noticed when you describe this, you talk about the mental and the physical and then the emotional. You talk about first and third, and then second. I mean, the magic's in the middle, the secret's in the center. It's the, uh, the magnetic field that unifies the poles, the ends of the bar magnet. And I think that's what's so beneficial for people that find themselves, because of stress and anxiety, stuck in a binary view of things is either or, this or that right everything or nothing and how do we break out of that duality the path to a, a non dual view it seems is not to just jump to the oneness of things but to see what enables that which is the magnetic nature of that second ray we call it love and it's consciousness it's its awareness it's the the sun aspect or the daughter of the offspring of spirit and matter that unifies what might seem to be opposites (laughs) into one whole thing.
0: Exactly. A a couple of things here. Um, Another way we can look at this trinity is in terms of motion. Uh, Matter's motion is rotary. This is why in the East they talk about the fire of matter or kundalini, which is only one of three sacred fires— but the fire of kundalini, either within the planet or within a human being, its its natural motion is rotary. It's, it's described as a snake with its coiled at the base of the of the tail. Um, the motion of the first aspect or spirit is one pointed direction. When you put the two together, one pointed direction and rotary or cyclic activity of matter, you get a spiral. And so we talk about consciousness growing on higher and higher turns of the spiral as we meet our lessons and our experiences and we incorporate and embody the wisdom. The other thing is that when we look out in the world today, we see the fire of matter manifesting primarily, which is duality. And this is also called fire by friction. Which implies duality, because in order to have friction, you have to have two things to frict against each other. So we <laughs> see we see these pairs of opposites every everywhere.
1: Conflict, in other words.
0: Conflict, absolutely. But the the point of resolution is not in the conflicting two. If you think of a seesaw, right? You've got a fulcrum, and That fulcrum is not static. That fulcrum is the most dynamic point on the whole seesaw because that fulcrum is reaching out to both ends and holding them in relationship or balance to each other. So in any conflict, the point of resolution is always in a higher frequency or a higher plane than the contending two.
1: Often in life, we feel like, We feel the cyclic nature of things like, here we go again. And why does this always happen to me? Why does this keep happening around and around? The idea that it's actually a spiral, you know, to add that third dimension and say, well, you may be coming back around the circle, but on a higher plane as you Spiral up is, again, a brilliant opening that can really empower us to recognize that while we may be going around and around, we're also moving up at the same time. Both things both things are true, right?
0: Right, right. And the reason things keep coming around is because we haven't dealt with them. That's the reason they're there. Once we incorporate the lesson or the wisdom that that crisis of opportunity offers, then we don't have to repeat it. You know, there's a fallacy that people think that Just because you go through something means you're karmically done with it. No, you're karmically done with it when you get the lesson, and then you don't have to repeat it. And the problem is, if you don't deal with something on one level, when it comes around again, it's a little stronger. And if you still ignore it, it'll come around again and be stronger to the point where you have to deal with it. We don't need to get to that point. We can always have the choice of learning through joy, but we rarely take that. You know, there's something within humanity that waits until the very last moment, our backs are against the wall, and we have to deal with something uh, before we uh, move into that next step and and, uh, and incorporate the lesson it has to give.
1: You talk about the bar magnet, and I love that allegory. It also has occurred to me, not originally, it's been discussed and described for many years, that an uphill is also a downhill, the hill that runs upward and is difficult to walk up, also is a downward slope, and uh, you can skate down that with ease. But it's one hill, and so often in life we look at opposites where it would be so much wiser to just raise our perspective and see the wholeness both sides of the coin, both ends of the stick, it's a hill. And in this direction, you have to climb it. And in this direction, you get to walk down it with much greater ease. But it's just one hill. How do we appeal to our friends and neighbors who are so binary, black and white, all or nothing in their thinking, to recognize this ultimate harmony and unity? beyond the veil, so to speak?
0: Well, unfortunately, we can't make people uh, achieve the next step of the path. All we can do is hold out possibilities, choices, and leave it to their own free will to move into those choices. You know, the spiritual path is always one of complete freedom of will. You know, you were talking about the hill or the mountain there. We have this idea of, you know, everybody starts at the base of the mountain. Uh, some people start on the sunny side of the mountain in a tropical uh, sort of environment, maybe others on the other side of the mountain in a snowy sort of uh, side of the mountain, perhaps. But the thing is that if wisdom is at the top, if Christedness or adeptship or mastery is at the top, as each one climbs and creates their own path upward they not only get closer to the top, they get closer to each other. And at a certain level of the mountain, they begin to realize that the mountain climb is not just something for them that they're doing. It's the path of humanity. And in that particular place on the path, they begin to open up to the soul of humanity. And they can, at that point, overlook the form that... One of the, the great things about matter is that matter is supposed to be beautiful and diverse, but we can have a oneness of consciousness with the diversity of form. We haven't learned how to be diverse in our form. Humanity intrinsically knows that we are a one life, but because we're so focused in the form – They think that that oneness must be brought about by the form. If everybody is the same political party, if everybody is the same religion, if everybody is the same ethnicity, we'll have oneness. No, we have to have that oneness with the diversity of form. And that's something that needs to be practiced and learned.
1: Unity and diversity. The one and the many. Exactly. Exactly. Well, there are mountain guides, and there are teachers, fortunately. And as I said at the top of the show, I'm forever grateful to you for the opportunity to sit in your classes. Tell us your website if people want to find out more about the nature of the soul class. And I know you do several. You do over a dozen different classes, all of them online, easily accessible. How do our listeners find out more?
0: Well, my website is www.lambertslodge, L-A-M-B-E-R-T-S-L-O-D-G-E, lambertslodge.com. Now, the website is not configured for your phone, so if you try to access it from your phone, uh, it won't make any sense to you. You'll need a, a computer or a, an iPad or something like that.
1: Okay, Lamberts with an S, lambertslodge.com. Yes. Georgia Lambert, my guest today on uh, KPFK in Georgia, thank you so very much. Peace, love, and blessings to you and the wonderful work that you do for so many of uh, your students. And I look forward to uh, having you back again.
0: And blessings Um, to you and Doreen and to all the listeners out there.
1: Thank you. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm Michael Benner, and you've been listening to KPFK Los Angeles. Appreciate you making a regular habit of it. We're back on the air after about 12 or 13 years of what I had called retirement, but that didn't work out. (laughs) turns out I I got to do what I love to do, and and I appreciate uh, KPFK giving us this opportunity to meet here at 90.7 and for the world at kpfk.org every Tuesday at one o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time. And uh, I'm podcasting this program also. So you can go to my podcast page at theagelesswisdom.com or any aggregator app or uh, player uh, website, wherever you pick up your podcasts, you can find the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner on KPFK Los Angeles.